Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 78, The Atomic Knights, part of the Murphy Anderson Comic Book Podcast Crossover. Hello, time travelers. It's Ben. Ben Avery, a comic book podcaster, comic book writer, comic book fan, comic book collector. And all those things mean that I'm talking into a microphone right now to you about comic books. Specifically, I'm here to talk about uh, comics by Murphy Anderson. Now, Murphy Anderson is a comic book uh, artist, inker. Uh, he's penciler, inker, cover artist, uh, pretty much has done it all. And he's done it all for, uh, decades and decades and decades and decades. I mean, he is, could possibly be considered, you know, just one of those founding comic book luminaries. One of those guys who has been around just forever, just doing solid work for forever. And I wasn't real familiar with Murphy Anderson, to be honest, uh, other than him just being a name that I knew about because I was around comics. But I've, I've come across him in a number of different places. And usually it was things that uh, it wasn't until looking at his list of credits that I wasn't even aware that I was aware of. For example, he was the artist on DC's John Carter comics uh, for when it was in the series called Weird Worlds and then moved into some other Edgar Rice Burroughs related titles. But that's what Marv Wolfman was working on before he went over to Marvel and started doing the the Marvel John Carter when the license switched hands. And so that's something that, you know, I'm aware of that I would like to read eventually. Uh, but he also, I mean, he's worked on so many different things. And, you know, I went to Mike's Amazing World of, of Comics. And <laughs> if you look at Murphy Anderson's list of credits there, there's, you know, 500 and some things that he's worked on since 1951 until 1996, where his last credit, according to Mike's Amazing World, was December 1996, which was Superman the Wedding Album. And uh, now he worked on that as an inker. In 1993, though, he was working as a, a penciler for Shadowhawk. Now, okay, I haven't read that at all. Of course, I'm familiar with Shadowhawk being an image title, but... I mean, this is a man who worked worked consistently, and uh, I don't know, you might call him a journeyman. I'm, I'm not sure exactly if that's the phrase that you would use, but he has, has just done solid work. He passed away in October of 2015, so as of this recording, it was just last month, uh, at the age of 89. And so I guess the question would be, well, why, why celebrate his work, why celebrate the, the stuff that he was doing? And truth be told, the reason is because of just this solid work ethic, this solid work that he produced. I'd, I'd almost go so far as to say he's kind of a unsung hero. In the late 40s, he was doing science fiction illustrations, and he worked on a comic that I'm only familiar with because I discovered it online. Again, this is something I found and then when I was looking through his his work, I was like, oh, I know that. He 
worked on Planet Comics stuff. That this is in 1947, and these are kind of these early science fiction pulp adventures, and that's the kind of thing that you know really gets me gets me jazz, gets me excited. Uh, and so it was cool then when this was brought up by some people on a podcast chatter is what we call this Facebook kind of conversation that's going on back and forth. Someone said, hey, we'd like to do a, a crossover about Murphy Anderson. And I, I was like, well, I know the name. Let me look it up. And I, I look him up and I'm like, oh, wow, well, he worked on that. Oh, well, he worked on that. And then I find that he worked on the the topic that I'm going to be talking about right now, which is the Atomic Knights features in the comic book Strange Adventures. And when I saw that, I got really excited because that's something, that's a series of stories that I have really grown to love and appreciate in the last, oh, I want to say maybe year and a half. Uh, whenever it came out, it was it came out in an essential volume. I was really interested in getting essential volume. It came out in a showcase presents volume, which is DC Comics. Of course, that's what I meant to say. Why would I say essential when I meant to say showcase presents? There was a hardcover edition of just the Atomic Knights stories that was very expensive when it was brand new and I was really interested in it, but just didn't have the cash at the time. And then I saw on the shelf, uh, this showcase presents called the great disaster featuring the atomic Knights. And I was like, Oh, that's Hercules on the front. That's the atomic Knights, And it's all this, uh, what's the great disaster. And Oh, it's all these stories that are kind of this narrative of a future of the DC universe that, it was kind of pieced together after the fact, uh, but it it's this linear story almost, and it's very interesting. I really enjoyed reading it, and when I got this, I wasn't familiar with the Atomic Knights, except for they were in an issue of DC Comics Presents that I picked up at a comic book convention because it looked so, uh, what's the word, kitschy, maybe? It was Superman teaming up with the Atomic Knights in the future, and it showed these two knights in armor, knights in shining armor, riding giant Dalmatians. Yes, it just looked really weird. I, of course, was intrigued, purchased it, and promptly forgot to read it. I f believe that was the same convention where I also got the DC Comics Presents, uh, I think they were annuals that featured Superwoman. Uh, these were stories that were written by Elliot S. Magan, and those overshadowed the DC Comics Presents featuring the Atomic Knights, and I, I never read it years ago. I don't even know where that copy is. It's somewhere here in my office. My office is a horrendous mess, and this is one of those things that just became lost that I'm going to have to go on some sort of archaeological expedition to uncover. So I was slightly familiar with the Atomic Knights, and I am a fan of Hercules. Uh, now, my fandom of Hercules goes back to early childhood. There was a cartoon. It was horrible. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, I'm not going to sing the theme song of Hercules. I'm just going to hum a little bit, you know, Hercules, only the evil, fear him, Hercules. Uh, 
he had a ring and he would hold it up and he would give him strength. And then he had these, he had uh, a centaur and a little fawn who played his flute and animation was terrible. The voice acting was pretty bad, but of course, as a child, I really enjoyed it. And so because of that, I picked up a Hercules comic that was published by Marvel, which was completely different. And that's actually the topic of another podcast that I'd like to do where I do look at Bob Layton's Hercules Marvel series. But then the idea of this, okay, DC's Hercules is in here. Well, let's take a look. Hercules Unbound. It was another series I was interested in trying to track down. Didn't need to track it down because it was in that volume. So I buy this volume and I'm reading through and it's really interesting as you're reading through there's these pre-disaster uh, that's a section pre-disaster warnings and it's weird war tales and it's all these things warning about what's going to happen there's going to be a disaster and then there's this section that's the day after doomsday and these are all two-page stories two-page stories from weird war tales and house of secrets and when I say they're two-page stories, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Some of them are actually only a page and a half. I, it's, it's amazing. It's, you know, the beginning, a middle, an end. They're short. They're pithy. They're, they have, usually have some sort of uh, twist ending or some sort of shock ending that probably involves the character getting crushed by bricks or a wall that's, you know, falling apart because... You know, it's, it's after Doomsday. It's after the war. It's after uh, World War III. It's after the bombs have dropped. And so it's basically you meet a couple survivors and you're with them for a couple pages and then they're dead. They're no longer survivors. That's the twist. It's down. It's it's depressing. It's It's just not the most uplifting of a series of stories. But at the same time, it is the kind of storytelling that I actually do kind of enjoy a little bit. Like I said, it has that little twist ending. Uh, some of them are, well, some of them are one page things where it's just kind of giving you a twist on the whole, Hey, it's, I'm a man, you're a woman, Adam and Eve. And then they die. You know, it's that kind of thing. But then all of a sudden you turn the page and you're into the atomic nights and the storytelling changes those weird war tales they're from 78 they're from 70 they're from 1971 you get to strange adventures though you go back to 1960 and it's a very different vibe those early stories in the volume they're down they're depressing i mean they're about the days right after doomsday the atomic nights stories are taking place basically at the same time uh the Doomsday happened in 1986, and uh, that's actually one reason why I, it really hits one of my sweet spots is because it's kind of that past future kind of thing where they're they're looking forward into the future, and by the time I got to it, it was you know 1986. We're way way past that. Now the way Doomsday happens here could have happened in 1986. Very very easily if if things had happened the way it shows here in these atomic knights stories it very 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 easily could have gone this route back in 1986 
In fact, it's scary to think about how close we came to world events playing out just like this. There's just one element that was missing. One element that made these stories fiction and made our reality turn out in a much different and much more positive way. Now, we'll get to that when we get there. And and that's a little bit of a, a teaser for you. What is that one element that was missing in our world that allowed us to skip this doomsday? We'll get to it because we're going to do a flyover of the series. And we're not going to take an in-depth look at every single story, but there's a little bit of something to talk about in almost every single story. Some of them, they are a little bit forgettable. And most of them, I don't want to tip my hand too much, but I will say they're not the greatest stories in the entire world. Uh, There are other stories that I would probably rather read than these, but I'm glad I read them. And I'm actually glad I read them again. And I know I'm going to read them at least one more time sometime in you know a couple years. I'm going to pick this book up and, and just start reading through it again because they're enjoyable. And now they were written by uh, John Broom and he wrote all the stories and they were illustrated by Murphy Anderson. The, he was the artist on these stories. And they both worked on this set of stories together for the entire run. Now, these were printed in Strange Adventures. At the time, Strange Adventures didn't have a lead feature or didn't have a regular lead feature. It was an anthology book, and it had a number of science fiction short stories within each issue. So, like I said, it didn't have a a lead, a regular lead feature. And, And they ended up doing this kind of cool thing where they were rotating three features. They were rotating a space museum, Star Hawkins, and Atomic Nights every uh, issue. So there'd be a Space Museum lead story, then the next issue would have a Star Hawkins story, and then the next issue would have an Atomic Nights story. And I love this idea. I think this is really neat. Uh, I also think that Space Museum itself is kind of neat. It's a, basically a kid uh, going to a museum and looking at an exhibit, and when they look at the exhibit, they ask about it, and then they tell the story of the exhibit. And it's a, a just a way to kind of have a uh, it's, it's kind of like um, well the Twilight Zone I guess or maybe a better example might even be uh, Friday the Thirteenth the series where where the, where there's this uh, uh, antique shop and every item has a story in the antique shop and I, I like that idea I think it's really kind of neat I I would like to actually read those stories too uh, Star Hawkins is uh, basically a space detective. And again, it's kind of, he sounds cool. I, I, I think I'd like to know more about Star Hawkins. Uh, but the Atomic Knights, just, it's very, oh, I, I don't want to use the word interesting too much, but it is. It's this interesting artifact of its time. It's not just, you know, looking forward with imagination to, you know, what what robots could be out there? You know what happens if robots start thinking for themselves, or what? You know what, aliens. What what kind of aliens could be out there? And what would we do if they came here? And you know, it's not just alien invasion stuff. It's and it's not an anthology either. It's not where here's the next adventure for this one character, or here's 
the you know here's just this next story uh it's bigger than that it's broader than that and that's what really intrigues me and as i was reading i was reading all these short 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 depressing stories then i get to the atomic night stories and i'm like this this is a television show right here this is not not back then not in 1960 it wouldn't have worked at least not the way it's presented here and not the way that it attracted me i'm talking about this is a a, a television show like like the walking dead this is a television show like lost this is a television show like jericho which really is a lot like like jericho now there's elements to this that make it so that it wouldn't work in a modern context the way it's presented here uh, I mean, these are guys who the bombs have dropped and there's this pocket of people and they are dealing with some bad guys and the bad guys are shooting a ray gun at them and they are in a museum and they jump behind these five suits of armor and this five suits of armor have been because of just over time, their molecular structure has changed to protect people from radiation. And so it's this perfect thing for them to wear as they are going out into you know the world that's been destroyed by radioactive bombs. And it's cheesy. Uh, you couldn't have them wearing these suits of armor in a modern television show. But you could do a variation on it. You could create a protective armor that looks like or is reminiscent of an old school classic suit of armor it, it would be doable you just have to figure out ways to as we say on uh, the welcome to level seven podcast where we talk about the marvel cinematic universe and those movies and how they turn the comic books into more realistic movies you'd have to figure out a way to mcu it is what we call it you'd have to figure out a way to make it a more realistic context but the things that this series does it reminds me of these serialized television shows where you have a group of people who are thrown together into a high intensity situation that they must survive and come together to survive. And that's one of the attractions here is because this takes place not in real time, but close to it. As far as these stories are appearing every three months, time is passing the bombs drop in 1986, but at one point we find ourselves in 1987, and then a few months later we find ourselves in 1991. Time is passing, and they are building a new society. It's really, really fun the way these things play out. And so, I'm like I said, we're going to do a flyover, and we're going to fly over as if we're in a glider, gliding over the land and looking down upon the earth looking down on these stories uh, which started in june 1960 at least that's the cover date the issue 117 of strange adventures was on comic book racks in april of 1960 so that's where you'd have to set your time machine if you want to go back in time to pick this up for a dime yeah yeah doesn't that make you just ugh. sometimes i get so angry when i look at the comic book prices of yesteryear but i need to hold it in i need to just relax it's okay what makes me feel even worse is i remember then 
comics that only cost 35 cents. I remember actually seeing those. I remember actually spending money on those. <sighs> anyway, Strange Adventures, number 117, featured the first story by John Broom and Murphy Anderson. The first story to feature the Atomic Knights. Like I said, April 26, 1960, and the story that we get basically tells how Gardner Grail, who's a sergeant in the army who found himself unconscious after the war, he survived the war. Uh, he's running away from people, and he gets rescued and helped, and he meets Douglas Harold, and he meets Hollis and Wayne Hubbard, or Hobard, and Brendan Smith, and Maureen Harold, who is Douglas's sister. And they are all from uh, a town, Dur Durvale, <laughs> I think is how you say it. Uh, Durvale is their town, and they are trying to rebuild. But in this story is when they first get to know each other. They first find the armor. They first put on the armor. They first uh, go into battle. And it's quick. It's short. It's a 16-page story. But it introduces everything nicely. And it, it gives you hints of what's to come. But where you start to see more of a, an idea of where we're going here is in then uh, issue number 120, which is The Menace of the Water Raider. It's only an eight-page story. And this is where one of the failings of the series is it's just the, the short, short length of these stories. They needed more room to breathe, even though this is kind of a serialized kind of thing. Now, it's not a cliffhanger serial. It's just a time's moving on. Here's the next episode. But they build on each other. And so, yeah, in issue number 120, uh, they actually use the ray gun that they they took from the people, the bad guys in the first ish, or first story, uh, use it to power a car. And, and they're able to use that. Now, what happens is they get a note from uh, people who sign the note, band of humans who need help. And so they leave and they, they leave Maureen back behind, even though Maureen, she proved herself in the first issue and she's actually one of the Atomic Knights. She has her own armor. It was too small for any other man to wear. And so she was, by process of elimination, was allowed to come in to that circle of people. But they go and they find a weird monster. It's a crystal monster and it's stealing water. And it, <laughs> uh, they have to choose, though. Do we answer the call? Obviously, they choose yes, because there wouldn't be much of a story if they didn't. And there's two things that come out of this. One thing is we get some ridiculous, ridiculous 1960s pseudoscience where this crystal monster somehow, quote, evolved from radiation in the salt lake. And it was causing, you know, it was stealing water from everyone. And so none of the people could have any water. Of course, you don't have water. You're going to you're going to die. But the other thing that it does is there's this really neat kind of heartwarming feel to the story because you realize that when they answer the call, because it could be a trap, but when they answer the call, they end up in a situation where they not only help other people survive, but in winning the day, in defeating the creature, by answering that call, they have not just helped that small band of people. They've helped humans everywhere. And this is what I like about this series. Yes, it's cheesy. Yes, 
It's a little bit, I don't know, saccharine. But there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, as I look at current events right now, as I'm speaking here in the middle of November, and some terrible, terrible things are just happening everywhere around the world. And there's varying reactions to what has happened. And I found myself on this reading, you know, the first time I read through, it's still these ideas were there. And I was, I was still enjoying the stories partially because of these ideas. But as I'm reading it, I'm just seeing this kind of simplistic, cheesy sci-fi story that's reminding me that helping people anywhere really ends up meaning that you're helping people everywhere. And I know that sounds like, you know, just a fortune cookie or something. Uh, but the, the bottom line is I read a story like this and it's refreshing, especially considering all the things going on right now and the responses to the things going on right now. And I'm not just talking about the stuff that happened, you know, over in, in Paris. I'm talking about stuff that's happening here. I mean, it's been happening here for a long while now. I'm reading this story, though, about a group of people who have chosen to help another group of people. And if you take this in context, where there was a genuine and constant fear of this event happening, doomsday, nuclear war. It was on people's minds. We had, you know, the Cold War, we nuclear standoff. And I look at the times back then, and now I look at the times now, there's this genuine and legitimate fear of terrorism and what could happen and, and what would happen in, in the time of an attack or something like that. I, I even think of Y2K. And, and actually, this kind of ties into this spe specific story. Uh, I had a good friend who he was ready for Y2K. He had his stockpiled food, stockpiled water, stockpile of gas. And if Y2K happened, he was ready to just shut his doors and protect his own. And that's the situation we have here where we have this band of humans asking for help. And another band of humans who could easily say we're protecting our own. But they go out. I mean, yeah, it's an eight page story in a 1960 sci-fi comic. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's refreshing to see nice people doing nice things to help other people destroy the crystal monsters. Uh, issue 123 of Strange Adventures is called The Cavemen of New York. <laughs> this is another just it's a cheesy kind of story. Now, this is one where, you know, the the humanism there, it's it's still good. It's still kind of heartwarming, but it also still suffers from just such a quick, quick resolution. Nine pages. Um, Maureen actually did get to go on the mission here. Uh, but they go to New York City and they find people have been turned into cavemen. It's regressive mutation. The fallout, the radioactive fallout has caused them to become cavemen and attack their fellow humans. But they're able 
to remind them of their humanity and one attacks them and they're able to capture it and he has a wallet and they they show him the picture of his family and remind him of who he was and it's yes like i said there's cheesy stuff going on here and that's okay issue 126 is the lost city of los angeles and this is where I was talking about how we're giving this a flyover, a glide over, if you would. That's what this comes, that that idea came from here is that they actually go from Durvel, Durvel, Durvel. I don't know. I don't even know if it's a real place. I should look it up. I'm not going to look it up right now, though, because I don't I don't want to look it up right now. But they take off in gliders and go from Durvel, Durvel, which is on the east uh because new york is is you know a driving distance for them but they fly across the united states and they end up in los angeles as they're flying over the united states we do get to see images of the dead world and basically if <laughs> you almost get the impression they're flying over those people in those two-page stories that are at the beginning of this book right now which is kind of sad for those people in those two-page stories but they fly over they get to los angeles where they find a group of people who have they have a storehouse of food but they can't get to it because it's protected by an energy monster and uh, spoilers here uh, but the <laughs> this is such an anti-climax is they're they're going they're getting, getting ready to fight these energy monsters turns out energy monsters aren't really there in fact, they're radiation-induced mass hysteria. Yeah, uh, let me read to you the science of what's going on here. So they go to confront these creatures, these giant creatures. I mean, uh, the team, really, they're not even up to the, the, the kneecaps of these glowing energy monsters. And they realize that they don't leave any tracks and so they go ahead and they they charge at the things and the things disappear. And then they say, they were just hallucinations caused by the intense radiation of this area, sending strange energy waves into our brains. I suspected as much when I saw the unmarked ground. Now, the fact that they're actually made out of energy maybe could, I guess, account for the fact that they're not leaving impression on the ground. But... Yeah, anyway, uh, uh, so then one of the other characters says, array-induced mass hallucination. It fits. It's science. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's part of the charm. And I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock this sci-fi story in a pulp comic book uh, meant really for younger readers. I mean, they, they know that their, their primary audience is not 40 year old men in the year 2015. So anyway, the next series of four stories is kind of cool because it puts us right in with, uh, well, I, I say it's kind of cool. It would be kind of cool if they approached it a little bit different. Uh, it's Atlantis though. It's a four story Atlantis mini series. And what happens is they tap into some satellites and they're able to get some of the satellite imagery. Uh, unfortunately for Marine, it's just too much 
Um, in fact, here's what she says because you know a little misogynistic comic book writing is is good for the soul. I don't know. Anyway, everywhere death and emptiness, nothing green, no plant life left on Earth. Gardener, sometimes I can't stand it. Easy, Marine. And then she says, "Sorry, Gardener. I would act like a woman, but I'm all right now." As if to say, first of all, um, that's just the way women act. And second of all, it's not okay, but she's okay now. She's, she's, she's cured. You know, she's, she's fine. But as they are looking at the pictures, they see an island that is green in the middle of the ocean. And it turns out that the Atlanteans or the Atlantites, I think is what they call them here. The Atlant- Atlantids. Atlantids, Atlantites, ah, something like that. It's something weird. Anyway, 10,000 years ago, they had created a cobalt bomb and they were going to use it, but then it sent them into the future. And so in the future, they come across uh, Gardner Grail. And by the way, Gardner, that's a cool name. It's a cool name for someone who's trying to, you know, bring the earth back to life, especially in the context of the story where because they go to this island, they're able to get some seeds and some fruits and stuff like that. But it's, again, these are short stories. These are nine pages each. We get to find out a little bit of detail about Atlantis and what they want to do. At the end of the first story, their island sinks, and now they want to take over the world. And how are they going to do that? Well, they're going to do it by interrupting Thanksgiving dinner. Now, this is a nice little touch, though. Thanksgiving dinner for the survivors of of doomsday they have fruit now it's been three months in real time but maybe it's maybe it's a little bit longer uh but they they actually have uh they take the time to do a thanksgiving dinner and like pilgrims of old we're here to give thanks thanks that things are growing on earth again and that we live in peace three panels later they get attacked by the people from atlantis but that's a minor detail uh (laughs) The funny thing is, again, a spoiler here, they win the battle against the people from Atlantis because the people from Atlantis get distracted by the food and stop to eat the food rather than continuing to pursue them. And so the Atomic Knights are able to put on their atomic armor. But, you know, we get some, we get a nice little bit of moralizing at the end. Uh, Gardner is talking talking to Maureen and they're having a moment under the, the starlight And Maureen says, if we don't know who those men are or anything, we can't be sure that we won't be attacked by others like them. That's right. We can't. But maybe it's a good thing. A valuable lesson to us. It means that peace on Earth won't come from just wishing it, but struggling for it and never stopping the struggle. The next story, War in Washington, sees the knights going to Washington fighting a war against the guys from Atlantis. And there's some fun imagery here where you have them uh, actually climbing up the Washington Monument to stop a ray that was pointed at Dervale. And uh, this is the one, I believe. No, uh, this one, uh, not on Strange Adventures, but in in the first run, but in in the reprints, uh, this one had a nice pretty cool cover uh that's the interesting thing about atomic knights is they only got one cover in their entire first run 
and that was in a, an upcoming story that uh, we'll talk about in a second. But the war in Washington story got a really cool cover for Strange Adventures number two twenty three, where they are on the the Lincoln Memorial and they're shooting. Uh, you can see in the background some of, more of the monuments and stuff and. It's pretty cool. And Murphy Anderson got to do that cover. He got to come back and do that. That, that was an awesome, awesome little return for him. Uh, Caveman of New York uh, actually also got uh, a cover in Strange Adventures number 219. Uh, that one was by Joe Kubert, actually. Kubert. Kubert? Uh, I'm saying it wrong. But that one's a cool cover where you've got these cavemen just kind of fighting each other in the streets of New York as the crumbling buildings are behind them. And that's another thing that kind of adds to the charm of the series is you have this, I mean, the, the series is based on death and destruction and living in this world that has fallen to the bomb. And that's, there's, there's some intriguing thoughts that go along with that. There's some intriguing concepts that can be brought up with that. But here you have this group of people, like I said, who, civilization has fallen but they are trying to rebuild civilization and in trying to rebuild civilization they are actually continuing to fight evil and to help others but they need some help and they get some help in the next story which is from oh what issue is this from from issue 132 i think or 130 no 138 uh of strange adventures the attack of the giant dogs. And this is where those giant Dalmatians that I was telling you about, this is where they get them. Now, this is the finale of the Atlantis series and half of the story uh, belongs to the dogs though. Uh, they find a rocket that has fallen to earth. That was actually, they remembered this rocket being sent up and it was sent up with two dogs inside to see how radiation in space would affect them. I don't know why it's uh, dogs who was sent up into space and this is how they get radiated. Uh, why couldn't they just be dogs who got radiated from the bombs? But eh, whatever. Uh, these dogs are big enough to ride and ride them. They will. But for now, they got to deal with the people from Atlantis. And so they... Uh, they again, there's there's anticlimax. These, these stories are so short that things just get resolved so, so super quick. Now, issue 141, um, that's an alien story where aliens come to Earth and they're going <laughs> to take it over. But they, of course, meet the Atomic Knights. And yeah, it's it's kind of forgettable other than that they... <laughs> This is where the Atomic Knights uh, ride the Dalmatians into battle with twigs, uh, sticks. I mean, they're actually sticks, but, you know, they're like knights of old with their their lances. Issue uh, 144 of Strange Adventures is the only first run cover that this that they got. And that's with the Mole Men. Uh, And the Mole Men are on the cover kind of peeking over rocks down at two of the Atomic Knights who are riding their Dalmatians. And the story is called When the Earth Blacked Out. And it does it does deal with mole men. And this is what I was saying is how close. I, I don't think people realize how close to just world destruction we were, if not for one element. And that element that 
would have just put us over the edge in 1986 is mole men. Uh, it's really interesting because they set things up where they're talking about, you know, how things happen and they're talking about who pressed the button or whatever. Uh, there were eight nations that possessed the H-bombs. So the first few pages of the story, they're addressing that, you know, who who did it. They don't know exactly. And then we are introduced to mole men, men with the head and hairiness of a mole, but uh, humanoid bodies. And we find out that on October 9th, 1986, the, the mole creatures sent up a powerful energy pulse from their underground dwelling. And they show a mole person in some sort of sciency type of room. And he says, from now on, it should be only a matter of time before we can take over the surface of this planet. We need room for our race to expand. And he's sending this energy pulse that flies to a button in a war room. So it's one of our human war rooms and triggers the first launch, which triggers World War Three. Uh, and so then here's the moralizing that we get at the end of the story. Then it was the mole men who started World War Three, and not any one of the nations on Earth. That's right, Gardner. But we humans still cannot escape responsibility. We made the surface of the Earth an armed camp. A global tinderbox. The mole creatures provided the only provided only the spark that set off the dreadful Holocaust. That's true. So true. <laughs> it's also a cop out. Uh, that way they don't have to say, you know, which which nation actually pressed the button first. Um Strange Adventures number 226 reprinted this story and it had a cover by Joe Kubert and it's kind of cool. It says uh, on the cover of that one of the eight nations possessing H-bombs in the year 1986, who will trigger World War Three? And then it actually shows uh, images of these eight world leaders and they look like just the real guys. I mean, the real uh, president of the United States and uh, very interesting. And then, then uh, there's a, a, a nuclear explosion in the background. So, yeah, I, I imagine picking up that issue with that cover. <laughs> I would be even more frustrated because it's none of them. It is the mole men. Yes, the mole men. Uh, the story in issue 147 is the King of New Orleans, and that's uh, what's what's interesting about that story is that it features uh, cowboys versus knights in the future, the future of the past. Anyway, uh, they go to New Orleans. They meet up with these cowboys who are basically overzealous um, guards, citizen soldiers. And there's a guy who's calling himself the king of New Orleans, and he has taken over. He has banned music altogether. And again, there's just this weird scientific explanation of what's going on because he kind of has people under hypnotic control. And they actually, they give him a trial and he's put on trial. I mean, he, he took over. But he's put on trial and he says, you've been found guilty of casting a spell over the doctors in this city. 
by subjecting them to a certain ultra-frequency sound waves. In addition, you seize power, blah, blah, blah. And then Gardner thinks, sound waves? Then that explains why the jazz music brought the doctors to themselves again. Yes, spoiler, they win the day, the Atomic Knights do, by walking down the streets of New Orleans, playing trombone, a trumpet, clarinet, a banjo, and a bass drum. And it's kind of cheesy, yes. No, it's not kind of cheesy. It's really cheesy. But at the same time, there's just, again, that element of, I don't know if I should just start calling it maybe uh, cheesy humanism. (laughs) Maybe that's what I could go with, but it works. I mean, I've been with them for this long. And yes, this could never be an episode in that, uh, let's say, well, let's, let's put this on AMC. You know, with with Breaking Bad and some of those shows. I think Walking Dead is AMC too, right? Yeah, why am I asking you? You can't talk back to me. This would not be an exact episode, but, you know, they, they could do something with New Orleans and the jazz scene. And uh, I get the impression that my impression is John Broom visited New Orleans, saw some things he thought looked really cool. And this panel of them doing the parade down the street it looks like images I've seen. No, I've never been there, but images I've seen on TV of this parades and, and such. It just, it feels like he went and visited and just needed to get it out of his system. And I don't know if Murphy Anderson had a chance to go and visit New Orleans, but looking at these scenes, the way he's drawn them, uh, he's either using a lot of photo reference or he's he's been there because I feel like I'm there. And I guess it almost feels like a little bit of a travel log, and we get that a little bit of that. We've we've been to we've been to New York, we've been to Los Angeles, we're now in New Orleans, we've been to Durval, uh, Durvale. Uh, we're going to go to Detroit in a couple issues, but the next issue is the plant that hated humans, and this one, well, basically they create a slave race of plants that are controlled telepathically by a scientist guy. <laughs> And one of them causes an uprising of the plant race. And you actually get some of his thoughts as he's thinking about, let me see if I can find where he's thinking here. Uh, A human enemy trying to destroy me. I must destroy him instead. I mean, this thing, this plant is just basically surviving on instinct. And, but it has thoughts and they're walking. They're they're They walk with their roots and then they kind of have this three-petaled flower with some seeds kind of uh, on their forehead. And they attack and they, you know, the, the knights fight back and they basically uh, cause them to die of thirst. And it's, it's just kind of horrible. Uh, I don't think John Broom really was thinking through what, what maybe the, the implications of this story might be where this being has attained autonomous thought. It's a sentient creature. It just wants to survive. And so they're just going to kill them all. They just kill them all. Stop the uprising uh, against the humans. Uh, Danger in Detroit reveals that they're able to create a more passive strain of this slave plant race. I don't know what to think of that, but they show one serving people at a restaurant. It's a waiter. Uh, Maybe he's 
getting good wages. I don't know. Maybe we're away from the whole slave race kind of thing. But yeah. Uh, anyway, the story takes place in Detroit. They visit Detroit where someone has started production of cars again. They're going to get people on the road once more and not just having to ride on giant Dalmatians. But this is also where we get the introduction of organizer Cadley and the Blue Belts. And these guys are basically clearly, clearly patterned after Nazis. They have a symbol that's kind of a double X. It's two X's that touch each other. So it kind of creates a diamond shape in the middle. Uh, they're dressed in military uniforms. They are absolutely meant to make you think about Nazis. These guys are bad guys. No two ways about it. Their base even has a symbol. Uh, it's a circle with those two X's in it with wings off to the side. <laughs> and yeah. Now, I, I'm okay with with that, actually. I kind of like that. And, you know, re referencing the Nazis in a situation like this, yes, it's easy. Yes, maybe it's even lazy. But what you're doing is you're saying, okay, you have these pockets of people who are looking after themselves, looking out for themselves, looking out only for themselves and looking to control and to dominate. It's shorthand and it's easy shorthand, but it's, it works. It works. It's simplistic again, but you've got to use shorthand when your stories are now in, in these later issues, we're, we're looking at 16 page stories, but you've got to find some shortcuts to just say, you know who these guys are, you know what they stand for. Now, the next issue is the threat of the witch woman. It's from issue number 156. And this is one where a woman is accused of being a witch and the knights come in and step in to protect her. And it turns out it's all a misunderstanding. What? She's been affected by the radiation. Of course. And so she kind of attracts these two-dimensional energy demons. Uh, I don't exactly know. The science is a little bit spotty in this one. But, you know, it's, it's one of the weaker stories. It's one of the weaker stories. The final one is called Here Come the Wild Ones. And this one's interesting because this is where Maureen kind of gets her, well, she proves herself. And she proves herself that she can be, uh, or that rather that she can keep up with the men by pretending to be a boy so she can join a bunch of, uh, basically a wild pack of boys. It's just kind of traveling together, uh, almost like a, Oh, the Lost Boys. Yeah, the Lo the Lost Boys from Peter Pan. But then we also bring back organizer Cadley. And this is kind of the, the his final story where he gets captured and uh, he's he's out of it now. This is the final one. This is the final story from Murphy Anderson and, and John Broom's run. Uh, it ends on a note where they kind of talk about the wild ones and the wild ones are going to join their, their community. And Maureen is, is looking womanly again, although she has shorter hair. Now she had to cut it to fit in with the boys, but she's talking to Gardner and, 
the, the final panel of John Broom and, and Murphy Anderson's run basically sums up the character of Maureen, Maureen uh, pretty, pretty succinctly, where uh, Gardner says, well, Maureen, I, I guess you can consider your mission accomplished. We've tamed the wild ones. Happy? And Maureen thinks, of course, but I'll be even happier when Gardner and I have a boy, a family of our own. Because that's why she's there. She is there to pine over the hero. She is there to wish that she could be in a relationship with the hero. And they flirt with each other. And there's actually one story where Gardner says, boy, I, I, I have something I want to tell you. I, I wish I could tell you, but I can't. She tells him, it's okay, you can wait, because there's more important things to think about, like fighting bad guys in our radiation-proof armor. Like I said, the stories are simplistic. Sometimes they're goofy. Sometimes they're charming. Sometimes they're cheesy. But for me, it's a nice glimpse kind of into that past future, as I said. It's a, a look at the fears of people then. It's a look at the hopes of people then. Uh, it's, it's kind of this hope versus hopelessness kind of thing. And it could be brought out a lot more than, than it was. Uh, but it also has this idea of the evil nature of men who are in a situation now where society has dissolved. Lawlessness is able to rise up. These men are wearing suits of armor and are kind of a new King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. They represent the law. They represent order. And then you have these evil men who are out there who represent control and who represent evil and who represent selfishness. And so it's the evil nature of men versus humanity's better qualities. And yeah, it's it's pulp stories. It is not meant to be really probably not meant to be analyzed nearly as much as I am and probably not meant to be analyzed nearly as much as other people have analyzed it who have analyzed it even more than I have and probably better than I have. But if you look at it as a writer who is coming at things from his perspective of the world and where things are going with the world and what would people do in this situation? It works. It works nicely. And I had fun rereading these stories. I had fun just kind of visiting this simple world of black and white, literally black and white, considering I'm reading this in the show showcase edition, uh, which is a black and white printed edition. But I liked it and I recommend it. Now, the stories after this, uh, there aren't, okay, there are more stories of the Atomic Knights. They do feature into that Hercules Unbound series, which maybe I'll talk about uh, in the future. But the things that happen to the Atomic Knights afterward, I'm just going to throw it out there. The DC Comics Presents with Superman teaming up with the Atomic Knights, I don't like it. I don't like the resolution that it gives to the Atomic Knights. I understand that they had to resolve that in 1986 there was doomsday that didn't happen and it didn't happen in our world and it didn't happen in the DC universe. Ironically, 1986 being doomsday, uh, that's also the year 
that we had Crisis on Infinite Earths, which destroyed the DC universe or DC multiverse and created a single DC universe. Maybe it was looking into the future. I don't know. Actually, I do know it wasn't. But but symbolically and ironically, we can say it does. At any rate, this is a, a cut above, uh, I think, other stories from a similar time that are trying to do similar things. What this, I mean, artistically, Murphy Anderson, it's a very realistic style. And it absolutely adds to the realism of the stories, even in these ridiculous situations. And it also adds, uh, I think, emotional weight to what could be just, like I said, very cheesy stories. And instead, you have these realistic people uh, wearing armor of medieval knights. And by drawing it realistic, playing the stories straight, then it it adds to that and, and causes you to, I think, causes me anyway, to be more accepting of the situations, I guess. I still think this would make a great TV series. They would just have to tweak it a little bit for uh, for modern audiences. But I would put it in... I mean, I would just start the story after Doomsday, never mention a year, and just let these characters band together, and they have to choose hope over hopelessness. And I guess, you know, unlike... Walking Dead, unlike Battlestar Galactic, those kind of end of the world scenarios. I would like to see, you know, I'd love to see this as a TV show that that actually says, you know what? People aren't great. People are selfish, but we can choose to do right. We can choose to help each other. We can can choose love. Uh, Wow. I just took this podcast into some cheesy, cheesy places. And, And I think that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> I hope that's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm going to stick with it's okay. Uh, the other people who are part of this tribute to Murphy Anderson, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read off some of the names of the podcasts and give their their web addresses. Uh, Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast, episode 19. It's hosted by Ryan Daly, and he has a guest host, Chris Franklin, and they talk about some Brave and the Bold issues. Professor Allen's comic book reading journal, episode 5 which can be found at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. That's one of his different uh, podcasts on the feed. He talks about a couple Murphy Anderson comics at the end of the episode. Head Speaks, episode 17, and Task Force X, episode 16. One is at head.headspeaks.com. The other is at taskforcex.headspeaks.com. In those, he covers two different showcase issues. One is Showcase 60 with the Spectre. The other is Showcase 34, which is the first appearance of the Atom. Uh, and I have not listened to... Actually, I haven't listened to any episodes from that podcast. However, the host, Aaron Moss, he's on the Adam Warlock podcast, and I've listened to that, and I really enjoy that podcast, and I've enjoyed listening to him, to him there. I just haven't had a chance to add more podcasts to my feed. Uh, who's who special that is on fire and water podcast.blogspot.com that's hosted by shag and Rob Kelly. And they did a, a greatest hits where they took 
the entries from their Who's Who podcast that were drawn by Murphy Anderson. I thought that was kind of clever. And then back to the bins. Uh, Paul Spatero, Scott Gardner, and Dr. Bill Robinson are hosts of that show, and they did an episode, episode 216, which is their Murphy Anderson episode. Finally, two podcasts that haven't released yet, but there's Superman Forever Radio, which has an episode, and then King Size Comics Giant Size Fun.blogspot.com. They're also doing Murphy Anderson related episodes. And finally, there was a blog that I was told about that is called Coffee and Comics, which I love that title. That just sounds really cool. And he did a Murphy Anderson special looking at uh, Dr. Fate and Our Man from Showcase number 55 and Hawkman number five. So definitely check these podcasts out, especially if you like podcasts like this one, Comic Book Time Machine. And frankly, if you've listened this long, you like podcasts like Comic Book Time Machine. So it just makes sense that you would like these other podcasts. So for now, I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me as we walk through this, this cool little series. And I do recommend Go find that showcase presents the great disaster. There's just a wide variety of storytelling, all of it happening after doomsday. So I wouldn't read it on one of those Mondays where you're just feeling down. You just have a bad hair day. Your boss is angry at you. You know, you had a fight with the kids. Your wife doesn't really think you handled the fight with the kids very well. That might not be the best day to read some of those stories in The Great Disaster. But I, again, I just found it really refreshing to read The Atomic Nights, even though I'm reading a post-apocalyptic story. I'm reading a post-apocalyptic story about a bunch of guys running around in armor that protects them from radiation. And it was good. So until next time, everyone. I just want to say, be good to each other and Godspeed.